right, go ahead and turn in your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 15. For those of you that are new to Sovereign Grace, whether you've been visiting or you've been here a few weeks and you start to get the feel of it, we're in a, a series on Acts called The Unstoppable Gospel, which is why we have a sign there that occasionally falls down, and if that happens, please try and ignore it, although it's impossible to ignore it. But we're in this series of The Unstoppable Gospel, and let me just try and bring you up to speed with where we're at so that you can plug in with us in Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 1, we really have Jesus' exhortation to the disciples and then his ascension. And he tells them, look, you guys, you dudes, are going to be the ones that's going to take the gospel out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and you're going to have the boldness and the courage to do this. And, And of course, they're a bit nervous about the whole thing. They'd probably have a load of questions. But next thing you know, he's floating up to the sky. He's in a cloud. He's gone. And so they go to Jerusalem like he's instructed them and they sit there and wait. And just over a week later, the Holy Spirit arrives and instantly they receive boldness from him and courage from him. They break out the doors in Jerusalem. They start preaching the gospel. Thousands of people start to get saved. And from Acts chapter 2 through to Acts chapter 14, we see the gospel just as Jesus had said it would go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And at the end of Acts chapter 14, we see then Paul and Barnabas returning from Antioch, returning to Antioch after their first missionary trip. They've been on their travels. They're starting to really take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But when they arrive back, they begin to discover that some things are starting to kick off in the church in Antioch. They begin to declare to them all that the Lord is doing around the Gentile world. But then at the start of Acts chapter 15... This is what happens next. We're going to read from verse 1 through to the end of verse 12. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers in Antioch, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that we get to worship you in song. 
that we get to sing praises and we get to gather around your throne room, singing of your glories and allowing the word of God to dwell in us richly as we do. Lord, you're worthy of all worship. And I pray now as we seek to gather around the preached word, would we continue worshiping? Would we continue listening intently? Would our lives be changed as we gather around the gospel? And Holy Spirit, would you do your work through this message? Things that no words can do, things that no preacher can do. Would you change hearts? Would you speak to hearts? Would you open the eyes of our hearts? And Lord, would we be changed as a result? Lord, I pray specifically for people today who need to trust and understand that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. Have your way in us, Lord. Amen. I recently heard about an article in a newspaper of two events in 19, that took place in 1997 that I was, until coming across this article, completely unaware of. The first was this story of a man, it was reported in a Minnesota newspaper, a fellow that had jumped from a plane, and as he jumped, his chute only like partially opened, and he was actually free-falling to the ground. That's my like worst nightmare. That's why I will never, ever jump out of a plane, however many parachutes are attached to me. Because what if it doesn't open? But for this guy, it isn't just an idea, it isn't just a fear. It's actually happening. He fell over 3,000 feet in a minute, wondering as he went what would occur to him as he hit the ground. And miraculously and incredibly, because of the way he landed, he survived. There was another incident in July of 1997 that took place in Cairo, Egypt, when a gentleman woke up in a morgue refrigerator after 12 hours in a coma. True story. The writer says as follows. In total darkness, he felt around. And surprise, he discovered that he was resting among the dead. He cried out for help. Imagine the scene. And the paramedic who opened the door collapsed in shock and died. (laughs) I mean, it's hard to know how to react to that news, isn't it? It's like kind of funny, but he's died. So, I mean, what does he do? Does one come out, one go in? How does that moment... What happens in that moment to this guy? Now, obviously, these two men in 1997 are never going to ever forget that year of their lives, are they? They're never going to forget 1997. The year when I was falling from a parachute and I survived. The year when I woke up in a morgue. They're never going to forget the day and the time that took place. But the interesting thing about this article that caught my attention is the title of it was How Soon We Forget. It was written at the start of 1998. And the premise it was written on is although these two gentlemen will never forget that year, how soon we do. And we do, don't we? I have no idea what happened in 1997. The only thing I can remember is it was my birthday on the 27th of November in that year. What happened? I have no idea. But I know it was my birthday. That's about the only thing I can remember from 1997. The truth is for me, and I'm sure you're the same, I can't remember 2007, let alone 1997. The truth is I can't remember three weeks ago, let alone that year. I can't remember what took place yesterday in any detail. I've got the attention span of an amoeba. I find it very hard to remember details and events. How soon we forget. We all forget past events. Some of them important ones. Some of them minor ones. But my primary concern this morning 
is how easy it is to forget the greatest event that ever happened. How easy it is to forget all that Jesus Christ achieved for us on the cross. How easy it is to forget and move on from the gospel. And my primary concern within that is how easy it is then to find ourselves facing up to the dangers and the perils of legalism. And that is exactly what we see on view for us here in Acts chapter 15. They are facing up close and personal to the dangers and perils of legalism. See, Paul and Barnabas have been preaching up a storm in Antioch. People have been getting saved and they've been built in and around the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. People are coming to know him as Lord and Savior. They've then gone on mission and they've come back from mission and they're telling everybody about all that the Lord has been doing in the Gentile world. But then these dudes rock up and start to introduce to the church, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And the fruit of that we see in verse 24. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words and settling your minds. What has occurred is they're starting to preach legalism. That Jesus alone isn't enough. You need to be circumcised in the faith. And then you'll be saved. And people are troubled. They're they're upset in their spirit. I don't understand. Is is Jesus not enough then? Do I have to become a Jew first? How does this work? What do we do now? Well, Paul and Barnabas then completely kick off with them. I love the way verse 2 is written. It's polite. He's clearly not English. He says, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. You know what? No small dissension and debate. It means huge dissension and debate. That's what it means. It means that Paul and Barnabas are going toe-to-toe with these dudes and going, you can shut up and get out because you are starting to preach in our church legalism and we're having none of it. These guys are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They do not have to be circumcised in the flesh because Jesus Christ has done it all for them. They are in no small way opposing these men, realizing that the flock that stands behind them is starting to get concerned and upset and troubled in mind. Well, these men then leave, but it's decided in the church in Antioch that Paul and Barnabas should go all the way to Jerusalem to speak to the apostles And the elders, understanding that this is going to be happening in churches all around the place as it's set up, we need to get clarification from the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem as to what are we saying? What are we saying about this Jew-Gentile thing? Is it just Christ alone or is it Christ alone plus other things? Well, Paul and Barnabas arrive in Jerusalem. They speak to the apostles and the elders. They encounter the Jerusalem council which has now been formed. And they start to declare to them all that the Lord is doing. And in verse 5, it appears that some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. They're sharing with them about what the Lord is doing. And this same group of guys then stand up in the assembly now and say, hang on a minute, though. As we've said before, these guys need to be circumcised to be saved that point in this Jerusalem council, for the first time, great debate starts to go back and forth until Peter stands up. And he stands tall and he stands strong and he makes it clear, guys, whatever you may think in this assembly, these Gentiles are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
Jesus Christ has done enough. They've clearly encountered the Lord. They've clearly received the Holy Spirit from the Lord. They are completely and utterly saved. And so in verse 11, he says, But we believe then that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. It's not by the law of Moses. It's not by performing some rituals or traditions. These guys will be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, just like we will be. Thank God for Peter, don't you think? Thank God for his strength and his clarity in the word. Thank God for how he was standing tall in this moment against legalism, against the intention to smuggle in works to salvation that is all by grace. What happens in the rest of the chapter is that James, as the leader of the Jerusalem church, says, you know what, Peter is exactly right. I, believe, I agree with him, so we should send a letter back to Antioch confirming that these guys, guys are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I think we should ask them to abstain from a few things. So food offered to idols, food that has the blood still in it, that it's been strangled. I think we should ask them to abstain from that. Some religions will say we should still do that. That's not the case. The implementation is he's saying to them, no, you guys are saved by grace alone. But here's the thing. There are Jews in every city. And as we seek to win them for the gospel, this is going to be a stumbling block for them. It's almost too difficult for them to stomach because of their traditions. So it would be really helpful as you seek to reach them if you could abstain from those things. But guys, I agree with you. You're saved by grace alone through faith alone. You're free in Jesus Christ You know, if there was a placard above this entire message, it is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And yet I want to draw your attention to verses 1 and verses 5. Because what is clearly on the attack here are the dangers and perils of legalism. And for me, as I prepared this message and thought of you as to how I can best serve you best this morning, I really felt the Lord draw me to those verses because I submit to you that legalism is a daily temptation and tendency for every one of us in this room. This didn't just happen here with a group of Pharisees coming in to try smuggling works. We do that all by ourselves to this day, still today. We find it hard to, to not smuggle in our works. And the reality is in that, we're like the guys that they then describe in verse 24. We become troubled and we become unsettled in our minds. You know, when we start to succumbing to legalism, we'll find ourselves lacking joy. We will find ourselves lacking hope. We will find ourselves lacking assurance. And if that describes you in any way, I submit to you, you have most likely given in to the temptation towards legalism. So three points this morning. Legalism defined, legalism discerned, and legalism displaced. I want to care for you as best as I can on watch here at Sovereign Grace. I want to care for you as best I can to ensure that we we don't give in to the temptation towards legalism because it is insidious by very nature. And I don't want that for you. So number one, legalism defined. I don't want to assume that everyone present automatically understands what legalism is as I'm rabbiting on about it. So here's a quote for you. C.J. Mahaney, this is the definition of legalism. He says, legalism is seeking to achieve forgiveness from God, justification before God, 
and acceptance by God through our obedience to God. Let me say that again. Legalism is seeking to achieve this from God, justification before God, and acceptance by God through our obedience to God. That's what legalism is. Legalism, in essence, is substituting our works for the Savior's finished work when it comes to our salvation. It is our attempt to smuggle in our works to a story that is all by grace. It is, in effect, in headline, in a phrase, legalism is self-atonement. Legalism, when we try and smuggle in our works to our justification, what we are doing is looking God square in the eye and saying, we're very grateful for the cross. It's a good thing and we're really grateful. But it wasn't enough. My Bible reading and my prayer and my outreach are all necessary as well. And then we add them together and you will accept me. You will forgive me. You will justify me. Do you see how horrendous that is? Legalism is saying Christ is not enough. It's Christ plus. And that is so serious. Thomas Schreiner in his book, The Law and Its Fulfillment, says as follows. It says, the origin of legalism is self-worship. If people are justified through their obedience to the law, then they merit praise, honor, and glory. Legalism, in other words, means that the glory goes to people rather than God. Their desire to obey the law, though it appears commendable, is actually an insidious way of trying to gain recognition before God. My friends, legalism is the height of arrogance. In light of God's holiness, how far above and beyond us he is, and in light of our sinfulness, how arrogant it is to assume that I am adding to the finished work of Jesus Christ, and through my works, he's going to forgive me, and justify me, and find me acceptable, as if to say Christ's work was not enough. Legalism, then, is insidious, isn't it? It's offensive before the Lord because here's the reality. As Martin Luther says, I think he says it best, the only contribution we make to our justification is the sin that God so graciously forgives. You want to know what you add to your justification? You want to know what you add to your salvation? All you bring to your party is your sin. Well, what about my Bible reading? What about my, you know, my evangelism, my prayer? Yeah, they're jolly good. They're called sanctification. But when it comes to justification, you add nothing. The only thing you bring to the justification party is your sin. That is clear and without doubt unarguable from Scripture. Justification is all his work. We never contribute anything to it because Jesus has done it all. Justification then by very nature is not a process. It's not something that he's making us justified. Justification is a position. It's something you've been declared. If you read the book of Romans, you realize it's a courtroom scene. It's not a man trying to achieve it. It's God as the judge pulling the gavel down on the judges, the, the hammer down on the judge's bench and saying, you are now declared righteous. But hang on, I haven't done anything yet. Good, because he's done it all for you. It's not a process. It's a position. It's not subjective. It's not something he's doing in us. It's something he's done for us objectively at Calvary. It's not gradual. It's not, it's not something that, oh, well, you know, Chris is more justified than Emma or 
It's done. It is an absolute declaration and it is immediate and complete upon salvation. William Plumer says it this way. Justification is an act. It is not a work or a series of acts. It is not progressive. The weakest believer and the strongest saint are alike equally justified. Justification admits no degrees. Sovereign grace, listen. You will never add anything to the finished work of Jesus Christ. You never will. You may try. That's called legalism. But you never need to. Because Jesus Christ has done it all. Nothing contributes to our justification. He has done it all. And yet, how soon we forget that, don't we? And how soon we then seek to smuggle in works, thinking that my works must play a part in how he sees me in terms of acceptance, how he sees me in terms of forgiving me, and how he sees me in terms of justifying me. And what soon follows then is a lack of joy, a lack of hope, a lack of assurance. So how do we discern it? Legalism discern number two. How do we discern what legalism looks like? Seeing how insidious it is, seeing how challenging it is, how, how do we discern it so that we can avoid it? How can we discern the temptation towards legalism in our lives? How can we sit and how can we discern if in reality we're not just talking about a temptation here, we're talking about a reality. We're talking about the way that we've started living. And for many years in my life, that's exactly what I did. I lived seeking to smuggle in works to my salvation. But how can you discern that? Well, I think there's two ways that help us to see it, two things that I think are two sides of the coin when we view legalism. And I think if we can actually see it and actually behold what it is, it will help us then fight against it and ensure that we don't step into it. So how do we discern it? What does legalism look like? Well, number one, legalism, I believe, most often looks like us being more aware of and reliant upon godly practices than we are the cross. Legalism most often looks like us being more aware of and reliant upon godly practices than we are the cross, what he's done. That's what we see here in Acts chapter 15, verse 1. You know, it's good that they're reliant upon the cross, but what about this? That's legalism. It's a work. And yet we're all tempted to do it. We're all tempted to smuggle in our goggly practices and be more aware of them than we are the cross. Now, I'm aware as I make this point, the risk of being misunderstood is like off the planet in terms of charts. Because I'm not saying in any shape or form that we should then run away from godly practices. I'm not minimizing or critiquing godly practices. Okay, So obviously, godly practices are good things. They are means of grace. They are ways of experiencing God's grace, and we'd be wise to pursue them. But what I am trying to get over to you is that our godly practices are never the foundation of our salvation. They never are and never will be. We must never be reliant or dependent upon our godly practices as if in some way they are earning our salvation. They are earning the way God thinks about us. 
And the best way I know to illustrate this is to take you for a moment to the Royal Variety Show in the UK. Do you get the Royal Variety Show here? Do you watch it? Because you are the Commonwealth, you know. It's just, it's good, it's good. You don't, you don't watch it, you never heard of it. I'm going to let the Queen know, this is appalling. Well, the Royal Variety Show in the UK it comes out once a year. And the Queen goes and the Royal Family go. And they just have a lot of great acts um, that all play a part in this variety show. And, and, and everybody watches it because it's pretty good, particularly when, you, when you're a kid, you love it. And the best one I ever saw was, was this plate spinner, which I've told you about before, but I want to tell you about again. It's this plate spinner that, that rocks on up and, and it's just great, and particularly when you're about 10 years old. You just think, this is amazing, because the whole stage was filled with little wooden blocks, and it was huge, and then he comes out with all these rods, and you think, this is pretty exciting. Not sure what's going to happen here. And he starts putting the rods in, and he puts the plates on and spins them. And, and before you know it, the whole entire stage is filled with plates. And, of course, as he's going along, the first one's starting to wobble, and he's pretending that he's not seen it. And you're screaming at the TV. It's over there. You know, you're getting really into it. And he's trying to pretend that he doesn't know. And he always gets there just in the nick of time before it falls. It's amazing. I love the plate spinner. I found it both fascinating and terrifying. First time we bought a VHS, I recorded it. Because you're just like, I want to watch this over and over. He's, he gets there every time. It's amazing. That's because it's recorded, yes. You know, but, it, but every single time. He, he just knows exactly how it's going to. I used to absolutely love this. And C.J. Mahaney in his book, Living the Cross-Centered Life, he tells us how this really is a picture of a legalistic Christian. And as you read through the book, you realize it is. And I was like this. See, imagine, if you will, a young man, he's, he's just got saved. And he enters onto the stage of salvation, and there's no rods out, there's no plates out. He's just rocking on up. And he's aware that I am saved by grace alone. Jesus has done it all for me. He has, he has made my salvation secure. I'm amazed. Check it out. All these years I've not been a Christian. Now I am a Christian. Lord, you can have my entire life. I'm so excited. And a good Christian brother goes to him and says, you know what? I'm so excited you're a Christian now. We should start reading the Bible. And he goes, that sounds really good. Let me start reading the Bible. I'll give that again. Okay, well, we're going to start going through a Bible plan. You know, I think the best way forward is maybe we'll do it so that you start reading the Bible in a year. Three chapters a day. Check it. I will definitely do that. And on goes the first plate in his life. He starts spinning it. And he says, you know what? It's good to start reading the Bible. But as you read it, you need to make sure you're meditating on it as well. So we want to go through it. We want to meditate. We'll meditate. So the second plate goes on. And then somebody else says, you know, it's so good. I've heard that you're reading the Bible through a year. That is so wonderful. And you're meditating on it. That's fantastic. The Bible talks a lot about hiding it in your heart, which means scripture memorization. And with you being a new believer, I would suggest that you get little cards and you stick them up. And so, so before you know, another plate goes on or a few plates because you've got a few memory cards. He's putting his plate, you know, he's putting his cards everywhere. They're on the sun visor of his car. They're on the mirror as he's shaving. He's starting to really get imbibed in the wood. And he's loving this stuff. And he's starting spinning these plates. And it's okay. He, you know, he's a new believer. And, and this is starting to fill his time. Before he used to get up about seven. But now he's getting up at six. So they can start his memorization and his meditation and, and all the things that he's been instructed to do. And it's going well, and he, and he rocks up to his friend. He says, listen, this is going really good. And he says, that's fantastic. Tell me about your prayer life. Prayer life. Yeah, um, 
Okay, what's that? Well, you know what? The Bible talks about prayers of adoration, prayers of confession, prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of supplication. And All right, so there's, there's four lots. There is four lots, yes. Okay, so four plates go on for this guy, and he starts spinning these, and he's thinking, man, I, yeah, I was getting up at seven, now I'm getting up at six. I'm going to probably have to get up about, you know, kind of 5.30 now. And somebody says it's a good idea to make a list of all the people you're praying for. And, oh, okay. So on goes another plate, and he gets a little black book. And, and before you know it, he, he, you know, he's aware that there's quite a lot going on here, but he's reading his Bible, and he's praying, and he's trying to be happy about it. And, and you know, as he's doing these different things, somebody says to him, this is so exciting, you're reading your Bible, and you're praying. How's your, how's your private? worship going private worship yes um yeah what's that well you know it's good to sing before the lord when you're on your own and okay i've never done that before okay so so he puts that plate on there and then somebody else says it is so good your spiritual disciplines are so good how's your life group going man and your fellowship group and oh i haven't joined one of them yet you yeah oh you haven't joined a life group yet, I see. So how are you doing all the one another scripture? You know, bearing with one another, confessing your sins for one another, caring for one another, rejoicing with one another. Oh, I'm not doing any of those things. Oh, brother, you need to get in a life group because this is going to bless you. And so he starts putting all these plates on the life group plates. And before you know it, he's got an entire stage for different things. And then he gets over here and some guy says, how's your evangelism going? Because Brendan's doing walkie-talkie. And with you being a new believer, I reckon this is a great opportunity for you to get out. And if you really loved people, you would get out. So he thinks, oh my gosh, I will get up at three o'clock to do my quiet time. I will get up at four o'clock to do my prayer. If anybody else asks me to pray for them ever again, I'm going to say no, because my list is so strong. I'm 87 chapters behind my reading plan, but I will now do worship. I will go to life group, even though I don't even like the people. I will do evangelism because I feel too guilty if I don't go. And before you know it, you spot this young man who six months ago was at the front just saying, I love Jesus. It's all about him. Sitting at the back. And you wonder why. And so you go and ask him, you say, mate, you know, what's going on? And he's like, oh, Dave, I'm I'm doing everything everybody's told me to do. I'm reading my Bible and I'm praying and I'm evangelizing and I'm going to walkie-talkie. I'm doing everything that I could possibly do for Jesus. But I just feel so out of it. I, I don't have the joy that I had six months ago. And you can wonder why. I mean, surely he's doing everything that he should be doing, isn't he? All these practices are godly, right? They're good things to do. They're things I want to applaud and encourage us to do, Sovereign Grace. So what's gone wrong? Here's what's gone wrong. He started to smuggle in works to salvation that is all of grace. He started to think that what he's doing in his life is contributing to his justification that is contributing to his acceptance before the Lord that is contributing to his forgiveness from the Lord and he subsequently lacks joy as all he feels is I'm failing in all these things and when you encounter people like this you can always hear the distinct sound of crashing plates and with each each plate crash what you see in their eyes is a look of condemnation Because somewhere along the line, they've traded their salvation being all about Jesus to their salvation being all about Jesus plus their plates. That's legalism. And we all do it, don't we? We're all tempted to smuggle in things that we're doing, good things, 
thinking that these things will achieve in some way more acceptance from from the Lord. And we know we're doing it not when we're doing well. We know we're doing it when we're doing bad. So we go through a week where we're struggling with our Bible reading. A mate at school or at college or at work starts, you know, opening up his life and we realize there's a great opportunity to share about Jesus, but we miss it. And our prayer life is bad. And, you know, people at church that keep saying, oh, and he keeps saying, oh, I'll pray for you. And you realize you haven't done that for about a year. And you just feel down about it. And you assume then God must feel down about it as he sees you. My friends, in that moment, because we're all tempted towards it, we must remember that quote of Mr. Luther. The only contribution we make to our justification is the sin that God so graciously forgives. It's all him. When it comes to our justification, here's the scene. When it comes to our justification, God in his grace is singing over you. He delights in you as his child. And he is not interested in the plates. So when it comes to our justification, you can let them all drop. You can let them all crash. Your Bible study might be shocking. Your prayer life might be really bad. Your worship may be struggling. Your evangelism may be non-existent. And God looks over you and says, I love you and I'm passionate about you and I sing over you because when I see you, I see you through the perfections of my son. Anything else is legalism. Anything else is starting to push in legalism in our lives. As Mr. D. Dixon says, I think he has great counsel for us when we do this. He says, for I have taken all my good deeds... And all my bad, and cast them in a heap before the Lord, and fled from both. And I have instead betaken myself to the Lord Jesus Christ, and in him I have a sweet peace. My friends, what wise counsel that is for us as we are tempted towards smuggling works and legalism. We can take all our good works and all our bad, cast them in a heap before the Lord, and realize we stand before him forgiven and justified and accepted, not because of our plates, but because of his finished work on the cross. And in him, then, we have a sweet peace. Legalism most often looks like us being more aware of and reliant upon godly practices than we are the cross. But that's not all it looks like. There's a second side to that coin. Number two, legalism can also look like us being more aware of and affected by our past sins than we are the cross. And my friends, I'd have to say this struggle is far more common than we can initially think. It's the struggle of an individual that because of a particular sin, or a particular period of time in their lives, a season of sin, that although they've forsaken it, although they've turned away from it, although they've confessed it a thousand times, they still live primarily aware of it. And they can't stop thinking about it. And everywhere they go, it's there with them. To the point where, if they're honest, as they wake in the morning, as they go to sleep at night, they're far more aware of this particular sin or season of sin than they are the cross. See, that is condemnation. But condemnation is a form of legalism. Because it still says, the cross wasn't enough. It's the cross, plus my works, that hopefully will somehow make do with our sin, that God will then accept me. So if I can just, you know, I committed this sin, 
So if I can just be devoted for the next 20 years of my life to the Lord, then maybe then he will accept me. That's legalism. He accepts you on the moment where you put your faith in him as Lord and Savior and sings over you and delights in you because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, not what you're then going to do for him in the next 20 years. The moment we're more aware of past sins than we are the cross, it is legalism. Rebecca Pippard then in her book, Hope Has Its Reasons, tells the following story, and I think it illustrates this point so well. She writes, several years ago, after I'd finished speaking at a conference, a lovely woman came to the platform. She obviously wanted to speak to me, and the moment I turned to her, tears welled up in her eyes. We made our way to a room where we could talk privately, and it was clear from looking at her that she was sensitive but tortured. She sobbed as she told me the following story. Years before, she and her fiancé, to whom she was now married, had been youth workers in a large conservative church. They were a well-known couple and had an extraordinary impact on the young people. Everyone looked up to them and admired them tremendously, and yet a few months before they were to be married, they began having sexual relations. That left them burdened enough with a sense of guilt and hypocrisy, but then she discovered that she was pregnant. You can't imagine what the implications would have been of admitting this to our church, she said. To confess that we were preaching one thing but living another would have been intolerable. The congregation was so conservative and had never been touched by any scandal before. We felt that they wouldn't be able to handle knowing our situation, nor could we bear the humiliation. So we made the most excruciating decision we ever made. I had an abortion. My wedding day was the worst day of my entire life. Everyone in the church was smiling at me, thinking me to be a bride beaming in innocence. But all that I was going through, all that was running through my head as I walked down the aisle, all I could think to myself was, you're a murderer. You're a murderer. You were so proud that you couldn't bear the shame and humiliation of being exposed for what you are. But I know what you are, and so does God. You're a murderer. And you have murdered an innocent baby. At this point, she was sobbing so deeply that she could not speak. As I put my arms around her, a thought came to me very strongly, but I was afraid to say it. I knew that if it was not from God, then it could be very destructive. So I prayed silently for the wisdom to help her. And she continued then. I just can't believe that I would do something so horrible. How could I murder an innocent life? How is it possible that I could do such a thing? I love my husband. We have four beautiful children. I, I know the Bible says that God forgives all my sins. and I've confessed this sin a thousand times. Yet I still feel such shame and sorrow. The thought that haunts me the most is how could I murder an innocent life? At that point, I took a deep breath and said what I'd been thinking. Young lady... I don't know why you're so surprised that you did this. Because this isn't the first time your sin has led to the death of an innocent. It's the second. She looked at me in utter amazement. My dear friend, I continued, when you look at the cross, all of us show up as crucifiers. Religious or non-religious, good or bad, aborters or non-aborters. For all of us are responsible for the death of the only innocent that ever lived. Jesus died for all our sins, past, present, and future. 
Do you think there are sins of yours that Jesus didn't die for? The very sin of pride that caused you to destroy your child is what killed Christ as well. It does not matter that you weren't there 2,000 years ago. We all sent him there. Just as Luther said, we all carry his very nails in our pockets. I will never forget what happened next. The look in her eyes as she paused, sat back in a chair, and said, talk about amazing grace. This time she wept not out of guilt, but from relief and gratitude. And I saw a woman literally transformed by a proper understanding of the cross. My friends, I want to encourage you, if you are living with the constant and ongoing overwhelming awareness of past sin, if you are living in such a way that you are more aware of your past sin than the cross, I want to encourage you, you can be completely transformed and set free by a proper understanding of the cross. Because the proper understanding of the cross is this, Jesus has paid it all for you. He has dealt with your sin. It is completely dealt with, removed as far as the east is from the west. And if you have been forgiven of killing an innocent, if you have been forgiven of killing Jesus Christ, because we all, as Luther says, carry the nails of his hands in our pockets. If God has forgiven you for that, then why would he not forgive you of anything else that you're considering in your minds? My friends, Jesus Christ has done it all. He's paid it all for you. And so you don't need to live thinking that you are earning God's respect back through the way you live. That you're somehow earning your salvation back. That in some way the cross is good, but it's going to be the cross, but it's going to be the cross plus your life over the many different things. That's legalism. And it is offensive and arrogant before the Lord as if he needs our works. He does not. Jesus Christ's finished work was enough for you. And so we need to guard against this type of legalism, don't we? The temptation to smuggle in our works and the temptation to hang on to past sins as if we've now got to earn God's favor out of them. That's legalism. It's what we see here in Acts chapter 15, verses 1 and 5. And we need to discern it. And we need to stand against it. Otherwise, it will rob us of joy and assurance and hope. So point three then, finally, and in closing, legalism displaced. You know, when I first wrote this sermon in the middle of the week, I actually had this entitled, Legalism Destroyed. And then I thought, you know what, I, I don't think I can say that. Because I don't think it would be true. I think this side of heaven, I don't think we will destroy legalism. I think it will always be a temptation. It will always be a tendency and temptation because of our humanity and our sinfulness and our arrogance to want to smuggle in works. But we can displace it. We can, prior to this side of eternity, I believe, displace legalism. So it is put to the side and something else takes center stage. How do we do that? Well, I think Arabella Catherine Hankey in the late 18th century said it this way in a hymn. It's the best counsel I've heard when it comes to how do we displace legalism. She writes, Tell me the old, old story of unseen things above. 
of Jesus and his glory of Jesus and his love. Tell me the story simply as to a little child. For I am weak and weary and helpless and defiled. Tell me the story slowly that I might take it in. That wonderful redemption, God's remedy for sin. Tell me the story often, for I forget so soon. The early dew of morning has passed away by noon. Tell me the old, old story. Tell me the old, old story. Tell me the old, old story of Jesus and his love. My friends, how soon we forget. And the early dew of morning has more often than not passed away by noon. And as it passes away and we lose sight of the old, old story, the dangers and perils of legalism will always be right at our doors. So how do we displace it? Well, by telling ourselves the old, old story. By living in light of the old, old story. So here's my encouragement to you in closing. Don't let a day go by in your lives without taking the time to remember the old, old story. Don't let one day pass you by without taking the time to survey the wonderful cross. Don't let a day go by in your life where you don't deliberately take yourself to Calvary, where you can examine and remember afresh the glorious gospel because you will forget it. You will. You will not only forget past events, you will not only forget recent events, you will forget the main event. You will forget it so soon. We all do. So we have to actively remember it. And there are numerous ways to do that, are there not? Daily, we can spend time reading the Gospels. Daily, we can spend time studying the Gospel. We can pray the Gospel. I want to encourage you, if you have a quiet time, that's fantastic. I really want to encourage you to do that. It's a means of grace. To where we're experiencing God's grace. We don't earn it through our quiet times, but they do. They are moments of us experiencing God's grace. But I want to encourage you at the end of that quiet time, I would recommend to you that having completed it, you take the moment to say, Lord, I thank you for all that you've done in your word. But Lord, I thank you more that as I start my day, my day with you and my acceptance before you and my justification before you, has nothing to do with the quiet time I just had. Because we find it at work too quickly. When we pray the gospel like that, it sets up our whole days. We can sing the gospel. We can listen to rubbish internet or rubbish um, stuff on our commute in and the radio. Or we can listen to gospel-centered songs that start to remind us of what he's done and what he continues to do and all that he's achieved in our place on the cross. We want those things to be the theme tunes of our lives, don't we? My friends, if you want to avoid legalism, then don't let a day go by without taking the time to remember the old, old story. And here then is what I think you can then expect. As you realize daily the truth of the old, old story, as you find yourselves daily by Calvary in its greatness and its glory, 
you will be reminded of the banner that is placarded above Acts chapter 15. That your salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. It will help you avoid legalism. And in God's amazing grace then, I think joy and amazement and assurance in Christ will be your theme. Let's pray. Lord, how can we thank you enough for the old, old story? And yet, Lord, we do, we do forget it so soon. Lord, I pray for us all in, in the midst of a busy city and in busy lives. Lord, would you help us to not go chasing after new stories, not go chasing after new things, new things to satisfy But would you help us to ground ourselves and drill ourselves into something very old? The old, old story. Lord, I thank you for the simplicity of our fight against legalism. I thank you that as we survey the wondrous cross, and as John Stott says, allow the sparks of the cross to fall on us in our lives. Lord, how warmed we feel in that moment. How amazed we feel in that moment. How assured we feel as we realize, Jesus, you've done it all for me. So nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Lord, would our declaration then, as we move forward as Christians, as we take the gospel seriously, as we stand on it, Lord, would our declaration truly be in Christ alone? Oh Lord, for those of us that attempted then to smuggle in works, of those that are tempted to stack the stage of salvation with hundreds of plates, Lord, would we know that even if every plate dropped, you alone are enough for us. You alone. In Jesus' precious name.